Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. edition of all marine radio uh starring jeff kenny today yeah how about that by himself lonesome dove lonesome something um dove might not be the right word to describe that but whatever um so good morning to you uh jeff and i are going to talk about uh, an article that i got sent to me by somebody yesterday written by dale alford Major General, United States Marine Corps type. And uh, Dale's a friend of mine. So after I bitched him out about why am I learning about this in the streets, and uh, he apologizing profusely, right, which probably did not happen like that, um, I said, hey, do you care if we talk about this? Because the paper is going to be published in June in the Gazette, and he said no, no. And so, uh, so Jeff and I are going to talk about that. The title of the paper is "The Four Block Littoral Force: The Infantry's Attack Towards Force Design 2030." And I'll tell you what, it's uh, very, very interesting what Dale has to say. And so, um, yeah. So, uh, what we'll do is uh, Jeff, Kenny, and I will kind of talk about that. So, uh, yeah, so marine stuff today. But, you know, before I talk, before we get into that here in a few minutes, um, what um, what I wanted to talk about is what a shit show our culture is, right? What a shit show. I mean, think about, you know, the... Think about the impact of social media uh, on our world. Now, no doubt uh, that, you know, being digitally connected is a good thing. Yes, 
Yes. But, I mean, it certainly comes with a lot of bad shit to the point where I would say, you know, not sure. Not sure if being able to order my shit off Amazon is worth. Um, think about this. Extremists used to be isolated idiots, right? Living in their parents' basements, you know. And you could go touch a couple other idiots at an event that maybe you organized and somehow or other publicized. But what the Internet has done is is empowered the fringe elements in our culture and those that will scream the loudest. Those that will do the craziest. That is what the Internet rewards. And so, you know, organizations and movements... And craziness that never, ever, ever saw but a glimpse of sunshine, you know, now are better organized, better funded, and crazier than ever. Right. And that's the entire spectrum of it. Not worth it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, what you're going to see at the end of the day in the whole event at the Capitol is a bunch of people that aren't too right in the head. Right. That's what you're going to see. When you start peeling the onion on that deal, same thing if if you threw a net over the bullshit that goes on in Portland on a nightly basis. But that's not an insurrection in spite of attacking federal buildings, right? In, in spite of, you know, attacking police stations. In spite of all that, that's not an insurrection. You want to know why? Because it's not conservative. That's why. All the, hey, all the same earmarks of it. <laughs> it goes on almost on a nightly basis. But it's not, it's not, you know, if you're attacking federal buildings, that's not a problem. Unless, yeah, unless you are conservative, then it's a problem. So, I mean, it's, it's, but I don't want to go off on that. What I want, what I do want to go off on is just the disgusting, crazy shit that goes on on social media on a daily basis. Cancel culture you know, is 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 ascendant. And what is that? The intolerance of of the few beating the many? And so it will run its course. At some point it will it will get set up. But I'll tell you what, man. You look at it and all these crazy groups that that are in our news would never be in the news but for their ability to Network, organize, you know, put their crazy shit out, you know, put their stuff on YouTube, you know, create face, create, you know, websites and all the shit they do. And and many of them raise money. And then you see these, and again, the absurdity of all this, and I've had this in my head yesterday and today is this. If you travel around the world, you will see. That the most racially diverse nation is the United States of America. You will see that the greatest opportunities, no matter who you are, exist in the United States of America. 
All you have to do is travel the world. Just go travel and see what you get. And you'll come back and say, yeah, somebody pumped the brakes on this shit. Perfect? No. Okay. But does it have, does the United States have a peer? I don't think so. And I've traveled the world, world a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, the United States really shitty till you compare it with everybody else. Oh, not so shitty. So, anyway, so yeah, so I've been thinking about this. And so what you have is this this confluence of extremists in the United States that are selling their their racist shit with the Chinese who are selling the same thing. A totalitarian communist regime that runs concentration camp re-education camps for Muslims that takes over Hong Kong and all the rest of the shit they do, convincing the United States that it's a shit country. Could never have been done without the internet and social media. Yeah. So somehow or other, we have to find a way to shut social media off. I'm not sure how we do that. Well, I'll outlaw it. Yeah, there can be no comment section because the last thing we hear, need to hear, attached to any piece of intellectual work are the comments of the masses. Yeah. We don't, nobody needs that. Okay. And the only time a com- type of communications can be point to point and small groups. Yeah, completely banned Twitter. I mean, but think about think about all the extremist organizations. How they get funded, how they network, how they even see the light of day for the garbage that they put out there. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I've, I've had that rambling around in my head because, um, again, go take a trip around the world. Start in Mexico. Okay, go to Canada. Tell me what you see. Go to, go to Latin America. You're not part of the right groups. You ain't shit. Right? Go to the Middle East. Go to Asia. See what happens. I dare you to. And then come back and tell me what you see. Oh, well, this is so... No way. No way. So, um, I'm not even looking at the news today. Uh, So, good morning to you. Uh, The United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Just remember, you live in the greatest country with the most opportunity and the most freedom on the planet. Yeah. And so... When you hear all this other garbage, okay, that doesn't mean we don't have crazies. We do. And it, the Internet emboldens all of them. It, the Internet makes all of that stronger. Their ability to network, again, to put their shit out there, to influence other idiots, to raise money, all not good. All not good. But guess what? In a free society, they have that right, right? But again, their voices are amplified way too much. Way too much. Right? Way too much. And that's exploiting the freedom of this nation. 
which the Chinese do as well. The Chinese don't seek to exploit it. They think they think to they seek to railroad it, right? They're again, just look up Chinese contributions to Stanford, Chinese contributions to Harvard, right? Chinese manipulation of uh I mean, I just saw an article the other day where where the Chinese government put put pressure on some movie maker to include fair-skinned Chinese as opposed to darker-skinned Chinese. What? (laughs) And do you think they said, yeah, no, we're not doing that? Oh, no. You want access to our market? You'll dance the way we fucking tell you to dance. So, anyway. Maybe the world world begins to figure it out. Maybe this whole World Health Organization bullshit report Maybe after how many million people are dead around the world because of this bullshit, maybe the nations of the world will look and say, yeah, we're not, we're not buying that shit. We want to know the truth and we want access. And if we don't get it, you're going to pay a price. What China did to the world's GDP, yeah, that's straight up criminal. Let alone the death count. That might, that might break squelch. But we'll see if we play Emperor's New Clothes with that shit. So, good morning to you on a Wednesday. United States Marine Corps Band makes it official. This is the song of the greatest nation on this planet. Boom. Dedicated to a great article that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, uh, written by Major General Dale Alford. Um, nice going, Dale.
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Alright, time to check the weather. Currently cloudy and 64 in Quantico. It is partly sunny and 75. Down the coast at Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Sunny and 56 out in 29 Palms. Sunny and 60 at Camp Pendleton. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy in 66. Okinawa, dark cloudy 73. Darwin, dark cloudy 75. So Darwin cooled off. Oslo, raining in 47. At the home of Auburn Radio, it is sunny in 56. Looking for a high today of 81. 78 tomorrow, 67 on Friday, 70 on Saturday, and 69 on Sunday. That is a look at your weather here on a Wednesday. Let me just do a couple of news headlines, and then you'll hear from Jeff Kenny. You'll hear Jeff Kenny and I in something we recorded last night, talking about an, an article Del Alford wrote about um, the infantry and what it looks like, how it's transformed. And let me tell you, um, what Dale's talking about um, will fundamentally change the, the Marine Corps. It will fundamentally change the personnel model. It'll fundamentally change the training. Um, it will have an incredible impact. So we'll, uh, you'll hear about that here uh, in a few minutes. But uh, without further ado, let me uh, bring Jeff Kenny in here. And uh, we, will, uh, we begin to take up an article that Dale Alford wrote. Dale... Uh, you're going to hear me talk about him, but just a, just a little teaser if you've never heard of Dale. Dale, I don't know of another Marine that's ever done this, has served in combat at every rank he's ever held in the Marine Corps. How about that? Yeah, it's amazing. Dale has been involved in everything. And uh, he's a great guy. So this is Jeff Kenny and I talking about uh, um, uh, a friend of both of ours. But that's not why we're talking about him. Um, Dale's, uh, he's like most of my friends, extremely smart. You wouldn't know that when you meet him because, you know, great sense of humor, self-deprecating, humble. And, uh, but written a piece I think that is important and instructive. And so uh, without further ado, here's Dale Alford. No. Hold on. Without further ado, here's Jeff Kenny and I talking about an article that Dale Alford wrote. 
Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Normally you hear them on Thursday, but you're going to get a a double dose this week of the intellectual wizardry of uh, Jeffrey Kenny, as he's known to the people that love him. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing? Good, Mac. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. First of all, thanks for doing this. Let me let me explain to everybody. Um, I had somebody send me uh, an article written by a friend of ours, uh, Dale Alford. You know, who's a uh, who's a uh, major general, and uh, and so Dale, um, I sent it to Jeff, and then I called Dale because what Dale writes about, and this is going to be published in the in the in the June Gazette, and so and so this is kind of a little bit of a teaser for the article. Uh, you should certainly read it. I'm not I can't post the article because I think it'd be certainly inappropriate uh, <laughs> until it's published. Um, as much as I would like to. But anyway, uh, and I called Dale. I said, hey, do you mind if Jeff and I talk about this? And he said, no, no. He said, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy. I'd be, uh, you know, I'd be delighted. So uh, the article is called The Floor, Four Block Littoral Force, The Infantry's Attack Towards Force Design 2030. Now, and the reason I want to have Jeff on is, is Jeff's been the director of IOC. Uh, he's a bit of a scholar and in spite of his limited vocabulary, um, he, um, you know, but we're all very interested in what happens to Marine Corps infantry. If you've been an infantryman in the Marine Corps, this whole idea of we are going to become rocket security forces and the nation, you know, is somehow the Marine Corps is going to opt out of all the war plans and, and the nation is going to send up three more infantry divisions I, I personally don't think the reconciliation has come through on that, and I can't imagine the DOD saying, yeah, okay, we're good with that. You just opt out of everything. And so um, so anyway, um, I called Jeff and said, hey, would you mind coming on to talk about this? So uh, so, uh, so we will do that. First of all, let's talk about Dale. Um, how did you meet Dale Alford? Now, and, and let me tell you, Dale Alford is unique among officers in the Marine Corps. Okay. Very senior officers at the O five level, uh, which is medium senior, the O six level, and then our general officer corps. There is a lot of of combat time in a lot of those guys. I mean, some of the lieutenant colonels. I mean, they started going when they were lieutenants, and have been going back and going back and going back. Um, some of the general officers have, uh, by hook or crook, spent a lot of time. Nobody I know, though is Dale Alford, who at every rank he's ever held has fought for this country. At every rank he's ever held. And it's it's amazing. I mean, most guys, you know, consider themselves lucky if they get, you know, a few cracks at it uh, in the course of a career. Imagine that. At every rank you've ever held, you've been involved in fighting you know, kinetic operations for this country. And so Dale's an interesting guy. Um, he's also one of uh, the straightest shooters I know. 
and uh, we talk often. And uh, I'll turn it over to Jeff here in a second. But um, we talk about having the moral courage, you know, to speak your mind. And Dale doesn't lack for that. Um, uh, you know, when, you know, General Furness brought up the whole issue of uh, discipline and he was getting drugged through the street, there was one general officer who spoke about it in public that I know of, only one, and that was Dale Alford. And you don't, you don't need to encourage Dale Alford to do the right thing. He's not afraid. And so, uh, so anyway, uh, how did you, when and how did you meet Dale, Jeff? Well, I met him in, uh, I met him in like June of, uh, May or June of 1996 when I was in Liberia. Um, our Mew, which was the 20, uh, 22nd Mew at that time, was going to be relieved by a special purpose MAGTAF that was built around 8th Marine. Specifically, the GCE was going to be 3-8. And uh, it was commanded by then Lieutenant Colonel Lefebvre, 3-8 was. And uh, Dale was one of the company commanders. And he was going to come in and his company going to take over for, uh, for my company. And so we spent about two or three days together in the compound in Liberia talking about, you know, the, the tactical situation, the enemy that, you know, that was out there, uh, threats and so forth. But I was just impressed with the guy because he's such a straight shooter, so intuitive, so tactically proficient and, uh, you know, very uh, an out, upfront guy, you know, no bullshit about him. I had heard about him before from friends of mine. Uh, Mike Killian, who we both know, you know, right. you know, couldn't sing his praises and stuff and, and a lot of other folks, too. So I met him and he became a friend of mine and, you know, friends for life because uh, he's just a quality guy. And just like you say, he always, you know, will. And if I ever had problems like in my career or I had something good happen, Dale will call either with, uh, you know, either with can I help you if it was a problem or with congratulations if it was something good. So I love the guy. And, uh, you know, he is, uh, continue to be, he's the same guy as a major general now than he was when I met him as a captain. And I mean that as in a sincere compliment for sure. You know, I never served with Dale, but yeah. I heard about him from all my friends. And, and I, the way I'd hear about him is, Hey Mac, well, you know, Dale Alford, right? And I'm, and I'd say, no, I, I don't know him. And like, what? And they'd look like, what? You've never. And I, and so it, all my friends know Dale Alford. And every one of them sings his praises. And I don't know him. I don't know him. I finally meet him um, in 2019. I meet him uh, for the first time. And, you know, look, if if he's fast friends with my good friends, right, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you sit down and you're talking and you fall in and, and, uh, and you have similar experiences and, and whatnot. And so, uh, and so I, I become a big fan of Dale's. Um, and, uh, and so Dale writes his piece, um, entitled the four block littoral force, the infantry's attack towards force design 2030. And so, I mean, I think for guys like Jeff and I, we're very interested because we want to know how, you know, what is the future of the infantry? Who sees it? And, and, uh, and, and, and what do they see? And so I, I'm, I want to go through, uh, the article itself. And I'm going to tee up some stuff for Jeff, and 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 we'll we'll discuss it a bit. Um, and again, the article comes out in the the uh, the June uh, edition of the Marine Corps Gazette. So um, he talks about the vision of the future uh, being faithful to our past, and so the Marine Corps has, has has always had 
uh, a reputation for innovation, right? Because, you know, you know, close air support, a marine invention, right? Amphibious warfare, a marine invention. Embracing maneuver warfare, uh, marine kind of led in that, in, in that department. So Marine Corps has this great tradition and legacy of, of innovation. And so I think if, you know, Jeff has, has a fondness for saying, you know, if you want a new idea, read an old book. And, uh, and I mean, and, and I think a lot of Marines look to our own, our own legacy for, uh, for, for that creative, um, spark or that creative, uh, inspiration. And so Dale kind of alludes to that at the start. And then he, and then the first section of the article that he, that he titles is a legacy of vision. And, uh, and he talks about the three block war. So Jeff, uh, will you explain to everybody what the three block war is? Yeah, the three block war is uh, the Marine Corps, uh, specifically combat uh, units in the Marine Corps, find themselves in a situation where um, one of the blocks that they're engaged in is full on uh, force on force gunfight. The other block is kind of a, 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 a guerrilla type, uh, you know, might, might, you might have. Um, uh, civil disturbance aspects and rioting and sh- stuff like that, and uh, it's very nebulous. And then the other block would be where you have human uh, civilians types where there's a human assistance uh, uh, facet to it. All this going on within three blocks that are adjacent to each other, and the Marines have to be able to negotiate all three environments. And that takes a highly uh, highly trained, highly disciplined, highly resourceful um, Marine to be able to do that. And a unit that's trained that way, and uh, and that was prescient because uh, that three block war was something that you know a lot of us got engaged in in the nineties, you know, as a prelude to uh, to the attack on nine eleven. Now, I want to talk to you about that because um, you know we've all talked about the strategic corporal and we've all heard about it and whatnot, but I mean I I don't believe that the, that the Marine Corps, uh, given the way we train, right. I don't believe the Marine Corps is going to allow a corporal to, to displace a battery, to, to, to launch a battery. So to me, there's this concept and then there's reality. So these ideas that have been discussed are training pipe. And I'm not saying they can't, right? But what you have to do, if you're going to, if you're going to give somebody that responsibility, you have to train them, right, to be able to execute it. So you're going to have to train a corporal to the same level that you would train a lieutenant captain, right? And so, so, so again, if that's, that's the requirement. I, I, so what, what Dale writes about the four-block war is this. The four-block littoral force must be manned with mature, fit, intelligent, and superbly trained infantry marines equipped with precision weapons connected to the MAGTAF and the fleet, meaning the United States Navy fleet, and, as necessary, Carried to missions on reliable transport in the air, sea, or possibly subsurface avenues of approach. Talk to me about that fourth block now. Yeah, that it's amazing how you know you back to the future, but uh, that fourth block is uh, it, it has a lot of unknowns to it, and but it's in a, an atmosphere of lethality, and that uh, our traditional ways of approaching it may not may no longer be viable because of the lethality of uh, some of the weapons our adversary, probably China, would uh, employ. 
when I say back to the future, I mean that's how we approached the idea of doing the uh, the small Marine units, highly trained in the Second World War. The first time we went against, well, actually, this, you know, early in our fighting against the Japanese, Second Marine Raider Battalion went aboard submarines to do their first operation, <clears throat> and so that is true because and and the units that are in in uh, situations like that that are they have to be adept at being able to survive but they have to operate in small formations because again the capabilities in the enemy will detect larger formations and the lethality would uh would get you know decimate them possibly so to be able to deal with that you have to have highly trained smaller forces that can avoid that type of thing and uh and that's the to me you know the the uh you know, the jump we have to make into that fourth block. Okay. The idea you got mature people, highly trained, that uh, can operate independently, you know, and, and have the judgment to make decisions that we normally have, you know, probably junior field grade officers and, and field, you know, and lieutenant colonels and stuff making. And so that's the, uh, to me, that's what that means. Not only that, but they'd have to be able to, so that we could be lethal right back at the enemy, even though we're, you know, not in large formations, they'd have to be, smart enough to be able to employ um, at least part of the technology that would lead to lethality from our side to the enemy. <clears throat> so, you know, it's like uh, it takes a stretch of imagination. But if you can do the three-block war and you can do it well, you should be able to do the fourth block. Well, especially with his contention that you, yep. the, the force is going to be a different force. It is not going to be along right. – um, I, the HR model that the Marine Corps has held since what 1972, that it's it, that 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 manpower model has got to change. Let me read you one more paragraph, Jeff, and and I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, this is the last paragraph of what I would say is the first section of the article. History reminds us that Marines will never be far removed from natural disasters, foreign crises, or fleet operations. Operations. It also instructs us that large conventional operations are not only an anomaly, but also only only came after significant national mobilization. A four-block littoral force must have the humility, discipline, and vision to accept the difference between what it must do now for the fleet and national interests overseas and what it might be in a future war for the nation's survival. Just as we could not do both simultaneously because we lack the ships and force structure, we should not pretend that we have the time or funding to perpetually train for both. However, we can train for three and plan for the fourth. An adaptable, mature infantry that can operate successfully in the first three littoral blocks will be the ideal cadre to expand, if required, for an assault into the fourth. The four-block littoral force must thus be the adaptable infantry required for future victory and faithful to the lessons of the past. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, that's uh, you know, I mean, that's that's the key right there. The uh, the idea that um, you know these uh, the, the formations we have they they're going to have to be <clears throat> the way I see this is. Th- they're going to have to be like a graduate version of the guys who did the three-block war and that um, we're going to need people who are mature. We're going to need people who, you know, who are, who are, who are smart and, um, 
and people have the credibility to be able to to not only do this with uh, our forces, but it's not going to be in a vacuum. We're going to be in places where other people already live, and that's going to be part of it. And these guys have to get in there and, and adapt to that. And uh, so the uh, the idea that uh, this guy's a little bit older, a little bit more mature, I mean, I, you know, I think back to the difference between me when I was 19 and me when I was like 23, 24 years old. And I, I was fairly effective. I was, uh, you know – Staff sergeant, in the, you know, an infantry staff sergeant, a reconnaissance uh, platoon sergeant, first a team leader, then a platoon sergeant. But I, I needed those years before right. to develop into that guy. Right. And so when I hear this, it, it brings up a challenge to me because myself, you know, I was an enlisted recruiter and then a, uh, a CO, uh, 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 you know, a, uh, a recruiting station CO, as was Dale Alford and General Furness. And a shitload of guys that we know. And so the reality of getting the guys you need, it's a lot more realistic. It's a lot more, has a lot more, you know, genuineness to me and to those guys because they know what it takes to be able to, to, do, to, somebody, do, to do the recruiting piece. Yeah, to do the recruiting okay, piece. Okay, so let, let me ask you. So, so, so when you say mature, what, you know, explain to us. When Dale says mature, we're talking about older. We're talk- not talking about 19-year-old right. young people anymore. We're talking about more mature people. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and also, so there's a, there's a component of age. Um, there's also, I would think, a component of you know, their military education. That yeah. We've read different pieces about that pipeline is going to get longer, but mm-hmm. one would think it would get substantially longer, yes? Yes. And uh, like right now, the special forces and like – you know, Delta Force, they recruit from, you know, specifically they recruit from the Rangers, but they recruit really from the whole U.S. Army. You know, people go into it. And the SEALs, pretty much uh, most of their folks, although some of them come join the join the Navy to be SEALs, I think most of them don't make it like that. Most of them are, are mature people who've been, you know, doing some other jobs, sometimes other services, and, and then they join. So if you want to, and that's what we're talking about—that level of, uh, of you know, maturity, right. military education, judgment, you know, and leadership experience—and that only comes. You can't recruit somebody like that from the civilian world, I don't think, at that age. You, you're going to need people who have that experience, you know, of leading men, of being, of supervising young men and uh, you know, young people, and uh, and being able to do that effectively. And that isn't something you just have because you're mature, it's because you've done it and you've, uh, you know, you screwed it up a little bit and you got better and better and, you know, until finally you're, you know, you're a fine bottle of uh, military wine, you know, <laughs> after, uh, after a lot of screw but, ups. But I will know? tell you this, it is not the force we have today, yay? No, 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 it is not. No, no, I mean, so it's very interesting when when you read these things that, that, that Dale talks about, I mean, so you're, you're, it's going through your head and you're thinking, Wow, this is a completely different Marine Corps, right? Yep. And 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 again, what he's describing is not rocket security forces, right? That's not what he's describing, right? There are forces that that can, you know, when when required, use rockets to accomplish missions. But they're mm-hmm. also they're also capable on in the range of military operations to perform the unique capabilities that the nation is pushing the, the Marine Corps towards. Yep. Got it. All right. Let Absolutely me, right. 
All right, let me talk about uh, let's talk about some other thing. Uh, legacy of commandants. Uh, Dill makes a point talking about General Gray, General Krulak, um, our institutional bias towards looking to the future, being innovative, and transforming the organization. And he talks about General Berger's force design 2030 in that light. Uh, talk about that. And, I, and I'll just read you this. General Gray led a philosophical transformation with his introduction of FMFM-1 warfighting, enshrining into doctrine the concept of maneuver warfare. In a long view of history, his actions were drastic at the time but needed to propel the institution forward in preparation for what was to come. The history of the Marine Corps notes that he, and and he quotes the, the history of the Marine Corps, did not reject amphibious warfare. He certainly worried less about it than his predecessors. He wanted Marines to fight better by fighting smarter, by exploiting intelligence and targeting technology, not relying on massive firepower. The word commando came easily to him. He yeah. wanted the Corps to turn inward in a crusade of self-improvement. Um, talk about the way he uses not only General Gray's innovation, uh, but General Krulak's as well, as General Krulak introduces the three block war and mm-hmm. uh and, and, and so and so Dale lays that foundation as as General Berger's inspiration as he focuses on structure and organization as he continues to propel the Marine Corps to prepare for the future. Right. Well General Gray, uh his history had uh, he had combat time in Korea he had combat time in Vietnam, a lot of combat time in Vietnam. Um, matter of fact, he's the first Marine officer to bring troops into the Quezon area in, in 1964. You know, to, he led a radio recon unit with a company from 2-3 in there, and he's a major. And uh, and his time, he was he had a lot of different experiences that uh, that I think colored you know the way he looked at. The, you know the the coming future. He was uh, he was the commander of the force that evacuated Vietnam in 1975, the Marine Force, and uh, he's the one based on what he saw as a Second Marine Division commanding general. He saw it happen in Grenada and Beirut, and so he he developed the concept of the MU Marine Expeditionary Unit, where these guys would would specialize. And doing those other the, the three block war type things that really didn't get defined until later by General Krulak, but he was he had us working our ass off to do it, and the whole idea of the six hour window from the time you receive a mission to when you put your reconnaissance people out and so forth to look at it, uh, all that stuff was a legacy of General Gray because he realized the Marine Corps can't afford to say we don't do windows. The Marine Corps has to be relevant in all forms of emergency for the nation. And and he succeeded in that, and it would t- started paying dividends right away. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the ethos that he that he in, you know, that he put in the Marine Corps showed its uh, its value, first of all, in 1989 in Panama and then again. In, and then, of course, in Desert Storm and then but it continued on. You know, uh, it, it continued on. The next couple of commandants kept it up. And then General Krulak realized what it really was. The future, things were changing. The United States, you know, probably would not face another peer in a fight. People would fight us, 
but they would not they would avoid our strength and attack our weaknesses and be able to deal with that you needed an agile force not just agile you know in regards to movement but also agile in regards to thought and uh, you know type of unit and, and that 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 three block war thing was perfect and yet again our adversaries are looking at us and they're avoiding our strengths and they're going to try and, and engage us where we're weak and that's what general Berger's trying to do i think with this uh, the new force design and what we're calling here the fourth block is to be able to compete and win in that arena. And it's a daunting thing because a lot of it's hard to define. I mean, even within myself, I'm trying to figure out what the hell we're talking about sometimes, you know, about this. But I understand, you know, the, uh, the threat and the fact that our duty is not going to go away. And basically, you know, what, what Dale's talking about here is uh, we need to apply our, you know, our historical attitude towards these new challenges to this you know this rising challenge which is more urgent every day you know and uh, the uh you know this is a very uh you know cunning enemy and everything and uh, you know we got to be ready for it we got to have men who are ready for it marines men and women who are ready for it you know who who can uh, deal with this and uh and the first thing is to define the uh you know define the end state got it and then work towards it and Dale does that, I think. I have to tell you, he does it better than the commandant did when he when he first, when this new force design came out. Oh, it's, I agree it's with you. easier to grasp, you know. It's well, you're, you're starting to see it. You're starting to see it. Yeah, so let me read you. Uh, let me read something else. Um, near the end of the Marine campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, two commandants spearheaded something similar to best posture the Corps for the return to nation-state competition. General Dunford initiated and General Neller directed the Marine Corps Force um, 2025 initiative to redesign the Corps based on anticipated future threats rather than traditional force cap or legacy force structure. The Marine Corps Warfighting Lab led this multi-year effort, which included service-level war games and experimental battalion, and then MU and Corps-wide input from innovation forums and planning teams. General Neller pushed through several immediate changes like increasing the size of the rifle squad to 15, purchasing hundreds of quadcopters for those squads, increasing cyber and information operation capabilities, and investing in armed drones. Yet, the structure and organization of the Marine Corps remains solidly anchored to, to the traditional large-scale amphibious warfare force design of decades past. General Berger's force design of 2030, which deliberately focused on structure and organization in the continuation of the Corps' drive to prepare for the future, right? Blah, 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 blah. Um, so you see this, and, and to me, the Commandant should have hired Dale a long time ago to do this, yeah. and I think would have done himself a favor. Um, yes. So you could see just the historical you know, legacy that Dale tries to point out of how this thing builds and where this goes. Um, I want to I want to transition to the next section of Dale's paper, and that is the four block littoral force mission sets. Okay, so okay. block one, and and I'll tee him up, and then you hit him. Block one, persistent littoral focused gray zone force. All right, so what is what is that force's primary mission? It's got to be, you know. Um, well, I'll read it to you. Security force assistance, secure right. theater security cooperation. Yeah, entree, entree into the zone, which means 
a lot of the uh, the skills that uh, that we developed, you know, with our advisor teams and so forth in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. To uh, basically, what you're doing is, uh, in this case, you know, you're going to be trying to um, to support people who already own the dirt, you know, because we're talking. What's relevant to the threat is like it could be Vietnam, could be Cambodia, could be uh, Myanmar, could be India. You know, I mean, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's going to be like you know, water finding its level. Well, but, we can- but we've talked about these things in the in over the course of, you know, um, I'm critical. I'm crit- I think uh, Donald Trump's administration's major failing was lack of economic treaties. In the Pacific Rim, right? Understand he didn't like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's a right. fan of bilateral agreements, but we didn't we didn't strike any major agreements, right? And and the key thing, what I think is important about those agreements is those economic agreements open military cooperation doors. Yep. And again, we've talked about the difference between being locatable on ships in the region and being ashore where you're not trackable. Total, totally, yep. totally game changer in terms of a confrontation in that region. So persistent littoral fo- – and this, so this is pre-conflict, right? Um, you know, what – you know, a lot of the things that you do with mm-hmm. your, your mobile training teams and things like that, yeah? Yes, and that's uh, – you know, that's – and that takes – to be effective, it takes somebody who's, uh, who's a little bit more mature, you know, who can, who can possibly master languages – if nothing else, he can master the use of an interpreter. You know, he he can uh, he, he can he can work with people from another culture without. Uh, yeah. So what we're not talking about here is our company's going to go shoot on a range with your company. Yeah. No, not at all. Not right. at all. Right. It's going to be a lot more. Uh, we're going to have a goal, and we're going to achieve that goal, and we're going to do it through our partners. And uh, and and it's not going to be the same type of uh, environment with every partner. Like how you're working in India is going to be different than how you work in Vietnam, and how you you know how you work in uh, in the Philippines is going to be way different than Indonesia. So you're going to have to have people who are adaptable, and resilient and resourceful. And also, you know, uh, the uh, the maturity thing. You just can't pull a guy out of high school and expect to be able to do this. The irony is, a lot of those guys out of high school are damn good at this stuff, but a lot of them aren't. You know, it's better to have somebody who's been around the block and it's, and you want somebody who is sensitive to know, you know, you know, how the other guy feels. Other guy, I mean, I mean, one of those, you know, those periphery, those periphery nations, how they're feeling. And at the same time, um, to be respected by that guy so that he's effective, you know, and um, whether he's advising or whether he's a liaison. So wait, so in my mind's eye, so what we're talking about is. A green beret like force. Yes, yes, that was uh, the idea. I mean, originally, you know, the Marine Corps was in contention for that mission right. in the fifties, and they were just they hung everything on amphibious warfare. And who could blame them? Ten years before, you had, you know, Saipan and Tinian and uh, you know Guam and Iwo Jima. So they thought that's the future. Well, it wasn't. And and uh, well, that, I mean, it has been, but right. Problem is, the type of guy who's good at that. He's good at a lot of stuff, and they usually get pulled out of that, and they have them doing what they would call Mission Impossible type stuff. They're doing raids. 
They're doing direct action things. Right. That's what happens to a lot of our special forces now. Right. The true value of a, of a mature guy who's in fantastic physical condition, who's a lethal dude, he can be lethal, but at the same time he can – he can arrange for like inoculations for a, you know for a, a town or a village, you know for poor right, people in the right, area he's right. working in. He can do both. A guy like that, though, a lot of times gets used to do uh, you know things that are really a waste of his talent. Right, right, right. And right. Uh, and if you just only use a few of them, I mean, the whole idea of Delta Force was that started in Vietnam. They call it the SOG, Special Operations Group, and uh, it was a bunch of Green Beret who were lethal. And uh, but their first talent was getting mountain yards to do our bidding, you know, to do what was good for us. And uh, but it got it kind of got you know uh, it kind of got uh, misused, yeah, misused, just like uh, you know, well, I, me, so, so, get misused that was right. So again, and when we say special forces, that. when we say special forces now, we have this direct action thing is first and right. foremost, and and I think what you quite quite rightly point out is. That was not right? right. That was not the the number one mission on right. on that task list for our special forces. They were doing all sorts of other things, right? Uh, to be way bigger than direct action and have way bigger right. influence uh, when they were le- leveraged. Let me read you one other point he makes in this section: a future Marine Gray Zone force. So think about this. Think about the Russians, right? With their little green man in Crimea, right, and and so it's in this world, in this gray zone, that that this force would operate. A future Marine gray zone force should provide a persistent infantry presence through security force assistance, theater security operations, and right. other phase zero activities. This will give the United States and the fleet access and forward presence in these key geographic areas. And again, I don't want to blow my own horn about the economic treaties and things like that, but you can see how all this builds, right? You can yep. see how all this builds. And, you know, Jeff is, you know, the, the, a lot of the guys that he trains are a part of these security force assistance programs, theater security operation programs. You know, Jeff has had a lot of experience and all that. And again, all this occurring in phase zero, which means you're there. You're living amongst them. You're already mm-hmm. so. So anyway, any thoughts on and that's that? A, and that's a source of intelligence, and uh, you know, um, you know what's going on. That's human right there. Gotcha. Not only about your enemies, but about your friends there that are in the area. Are they are they up to it? You know, are they up to supporting us? You know, so absolutely. And, he, and he, you know the uh, yeah, it's very. Uh, you know, that's what we need to hear more about, you know, from the Marine Corps, you know, right. this four block thing, you know, is, uh, you know, it's uh, it really helps, you know, let people imagine what the heck, you know, we're, we're looking at here, you know, All for right. sure. Block two, crisis response force, primary missions, embassy reinforcement, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, tactical recovery of aircraft and troop known as TRAP and quick and QRFs, quick reaction force. Yeah. Proposed task is to guard, right? Um, so, talk to us about about this this block, Jeff. Well, that's been a traditional Marine mission. A lot of that stuff back from you know the, the uh, Boxer Rebellion, defending the uh, you know the Peking uh, you know uh, diplomatic uh, mission there, and uh, and and since then, and uh, you know it's uh, 
it's a, a lot of the mu missions that were you know that were adjudicate that were decided on in the early 80s are, are in that thing you know qrf embassy reinforcement you know evacuations things like that that's all in there you know and uh that type of stuff is always going to be necessary because this thing is going to happen in a quasi peace war thing it might not be like we used to joke around in the eighty, you know, when we were uh, in the early nineties, when we were at IOC, it may not be low intensity conflict. I guess you call it high intensity peace, you know. But where you're gonna, a lot of these things are gonna happen in a, in the, you know, in the uh, gray zone between war and peace. And so this stuff here, um, you know, that you have to do this type of thing. A lot of times, the first shots of a uh, of a conflict are gonna happen against your di- your diplomats. Or against civilians you have working, you know, in non-military type capacities in other countries. And they're going to need security. They may need rescued. And, uh, you know, the embassies and stuff like that, they're going to be, they may need to be reinforced. I mean, we're still reinforcing the embassy in Baghdad and, uh, and uh, you know, Kabul and, uh, and other places too. So, yeah, this is, uh, this again, traditional Marine mission. And this one, like, I, I kind of think that the type of guys we're going to need for the Marine Corps this is where you could use those young guys, a lot of the young guys that were developing into those senior dudes that will eventually be, you know, doing the more independent missions. But this is where you're going to need them. You want to you wanna, uh, reinforce an embassy like the size of the one we got in Beirut, you're going to need at least a rifle company, probably reinforced, you know, depending on the threat. And so, you know, that means six machine guns, you know, the old, you know, the stuff we grew up with, you know right. what I mean? Right, right, and the right. tactics are based around your weapons, and uh, you know. So, and that's that. That this is like the traditional stuff. All right. So that's block two is the crisis response force. Right. Uh, block three, the blunting force. Primary mission: limited objective attack. Proposed task: to disrupt and interdict. All right. Uh, the the blunting force. I'll just read you a little bit of what Dale writes. The blunting force will allow the true distributed op allow for true distributed ops. In this scenario, the national interest will demand that we have solutions to deal with the geography upon which the contest of nations will unfold. This could mean we fight spread across the Pacific or somewhere else across the globe. If the People's Liberation Army chooses to deliberately encroach on territorial waters or coasts of U.S. partners or allies in the Indo-Pacific, the infantry must provide a relevant force to disrupt the PLA's initial campaign. In this scenario, the Marine Corps cannot expect to use large-scale, multi-MEB, JFEO-type force to deter, defend, and defeat PLA provocation or deliberate assault in its own backyard. The changes in the character of warfare will not allow that. The Corps should instead maximize to the fullest extent possible the advantages the advantageous position that we have as a direct result of marine actions in the same theater in world war ii and korea which now provide a far more often overlooked six thousand mile head start when doing so we should strive to ensure we have four deployed infantry forces that are capable of conducting distributed limited objective seizure missions in support of joint Force maritime component commander requirements. All right, yep. I'll stop there. So talk about this blunt force uh, that's essentially uh, conducting limited objective attacks in order right. to disrupt and interdict. Yep. There's that, and then there's also um, 
economy of force missions. Like you know, you the, there's the Bob Elmont Straits, you know, that we're familiar with, you know, at the, at the bottom of the Red Sea, you know, that goes into the Indian Ocean. There's the Straits of Hormuz that lead in the Persian Gulf. But in the east, there's like the Straits of Malacca. Right. There's other choke points in the northern part of the, uh, you know, the Japanese archipelago. There, um, those that that could be one of the things could be seizure of key terrain. You know that it's going to cost the enemy a lot to dislodge you if they're not already there. And uh, you know that's the other type of thing, the other type of mission I think they could do. But the idea is uh, basically they're almost like shaping operations for the destroying force. You know that's the uh, you know if it's if things go well. For the blunting force, you know, then the uh, then the sequel is is what the destroying force does. If they don't go well, then the branch is uh, you know is more blunting. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> the um. All right. So the next block is uh, block four: the destroying force, primary mission, amphibious assault, forcible entry, proposed that ta- proposed task is. Attack to seize or defeat. Right. Um, I'll just read a little bit of that. A full combat force will serve as the initial ground element in a naval or joint operation. The primary assumption and present reality is that a Marine-led conventional assault force of anything larger than a regimental landing team will take time to build. This is simply because of the lack of available amphibious and merchant shipping along with the strategically significant size of the American infantry. At present, the combined total of close combat forces in the Army, the Marine Corps, and Special Operations Command is not large enough to fill the seats in the average NFL stadium. Now, and that's, that's without that's, social distancing. Yeah, that's pretty. that's pretty sobering thought, right? Yeah, yeah. Thus, a, large, it, a, a large-scale force needed for a major war could only form as a result of Congress allocating resources to a major war, which would have to include a massive increase in total force structure, possibly by a national draft. That'll get people's attention. The, um, (laughs) um, in such a scenario, let me just read one more sentence. In such a scenario, after a multiple year buildup, Marines would likely initially operate, from amphibious ready groups and forward deployed positions at expeditionary advanced bases. Um, so interesting stuff. Dale's concept of block four yeah. is, is is a long build up into a major world into World War Three. Yep. And um, knowing the Chinese like we do, if we're effective in blocks one two or three or all three of them or only one of them, we might be effective enough to where it never gets to that. Right. Especially in block one. Well, and again, you know, I think that that's the, that's the idea behind the Pacific defense defense initiative, right? As you and I know though, you got to be ready to go the whole fucking way all the way to four. Right. And, uh, because let me tell you, you're not deterring shit if you're non-functional and if you're incompetent. Right, and you can and have all, see, you can have yeah you can have all the great plans you fucking want, and you can say all the great shit you want. But when they see that 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 you're not ready and you can't do it, stand by. You're right, man. The tone of Syria and Iran was markedly different in February of uh, 2003 than it was in July of 2003 because the United States had proved 
you know how how capable it was by busting into Iraq like that. And and these people had used to Saddam pushing people around that area. All of a sudden, the guy's gone, you know, because of that. And that type of credibility. I'll give you one more. Yeah. Last January. Oh yeah. The whole tone and tenor of shit in the Middle East changed yeah. when everybody went, "Holy fuck!" Yes. If the Americans start doing that, mm-hmm. yeah, this is not. I mean, you, you talk about the tone and tenor. Yes. Of something. Um, You're right. Ed. That, there's a big difference between can do and will do. Right. And, you know, if you will take that step, people treat you with respect. Just because you can take the step, though, doesn't mean you will. But you pointed, but, you know, you pointed out, Jeff, that, you know, um, the, the angst with wondering – you know, are the Chinese going to capture a Navy gunboat and then put everybody on, you know, mm-hmm. the USS Pueblo and and this scene from the Persian Gulf, you know, yeah. surrendering the, the, the craft with everything, your computers, your weapons, all that handed over to them. Um, I mean, if, if your force is not ready to fight, and we've had these conversations, you know, um, on a regular basis, you know, what, what the American military is focused on now, extremism, right? It's not what the Chinese are focused on, right? No. And, and Martin Sheehan has a great line in, in Apocalypse Now. Every day, right, Charlie squats in the bush, he gets stronger. And every day I sit here in Saigon, I get weaker. Yeah. And that is that is the it's dichotomy, funny. right, yep. of, of, of what is going on today or what, or what a lot of his fear is going on in that this constant – Right, this constant discussion of things not relative to military excellence and war fighting, at some point the nation will pay a price. And yeah. you know Well what the Chinese you know, here's the big lesson the Chinese you know, they think they relearn it over and over again when they watch this. Like the fecklessness of our government right now, you know, they're looking at it thinking this is what representative government brings to you. A lack of resolve, a lack of singleness of purpose, and we're gonna take advantage of that because we have that because the average, you know, the average Joe in China doesn't have a say. But because the average Joe in America does have the say, the huge amounts of energy, mostly spent by our leadership class, is trying to make us think one way or believe something another way, you know. And uh, they'll use uh, they'll use foreign uh, relations to do it without. And that's why I think it was a surprise. I don't want to get off the subject here, but when uh, they got insulted so badly up there in Alaska by the Chinese, you know, Secretary of State Blinken, they were shocked at that. But, you know, basically they're, again, like we said in the last podcast, they were hoisted on their own petard because they've been using these uh, accusations of racism and America's a bad country. And it was thrown right back at them by the Chinese. And if the Chinese are doing that then um well and and again you know a couple things um and i don't want to get distracted either but um i'll link it to something gret newsham said to me two days ago and that is this um look when the chinese knew when agreed that this thing is going to be on tv the rest of it is choreographed all they waited was for blinken to say the right thing right Mm -hmm. when they play this card about what's going on with the uyghurs we're going to drop this thing on them, and you're going to hammer the living shit out of them. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Now what we see is China poking Joe Biden in the chest by congregating 200-plus 
Chinese militia ships around the Philippine atoll, which is every indication that they're going to fortify another one, right, within the Philippine Filipino Economics Exclusion Zone. That is a finger right through the persona of the Philippines and into right. the ch- into the chest of Joe Biden saying, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Right. And so, you know, Grant Newsom says, hey, look, they, they sniffed us in Alaska and they smelled weakness. And, yes. Yes. Right. right. And, uh, you know, I really like the way Dale, you know, set this thing up with this four block thing. Um, it's um, it's something you can seek your teeth into. Oh, I'm going to be in block three. I'm going to be in block one. You know, it's like uh, you, I can see this is uh, and how these blocks feed into each other, right. and that this escalation to a major confront confrontation, as Dale articulates it, you know, is going to take a while, and the United States is going to you know have to mobilize the nation yeah. to do it. I mean, to include. Not too many, yeah, too many, not too many guys write about, you know, maybe the need for a draft. And in yeah. his article, he does that. Um, all right, to finish, up, to finish up the article, let me get your thoughts on this. Um, last two, uh, the last two sections, he talks about this. Um, attacking forward, heeding the past. Um, planning for the future is foolish without a proper respect and appreciation for the past. Gerald Mattis is fond of reminding Marines to develop a 5,000-year-old mind through reading and the studying of history of warfare. Marines should daily commit equal time to conditioning their body and aging their brains. And then he goes on. He goes on to talk about infantry. This infantry force, and he's talking about the Block 4 force, and, and the blo- yeah. actually Blocks 1 through 4 force, right, must be built to win with both superbly trained Marines and precision weapons. The Marines in this infantry formations, in these infantry formations, must have a higher physical standard than the rest of the Corps, as measured by our fitness tests, swim quals, obstacle course, and an infantry endurance tactics assessment course. The Marines must also possess a raw intelligence similar to those in reconnaissance, the Rangers, and Special Forces. Additionally, the Marines in these formations must be paired with a personal initiative to pursue academic education in the art and science of war through civilian and military schools. These infantry Marines must be expert shots, capable of employing all weapons in the battalion, and proficient with the equipment and procedures for directing all forms of tactical MAGTAF and naval fire support. Furthermore, the Marines must be equipped with both conventional arms and man-packed precision weapons like weaponized drones and guided missiles. That is not our the infantry force of today. No. Your thoughts? No, I, I agree with that for sure. It's not the infantry force of today. And, uh, you know, the uh, – but it's a, it's a good challenge, I think, to, uh, to develop it, you know. And we recruit people. But right now, um, I think, what, is it? 75%, 80% of our folks are like below the age of uh, 25. Yeah, I think it's yeah. uh, 62 or 63% uh, are between 18 and 26 years old. Right. And and, and, so, and it turns over like 30% every year. I mean, it's astounding. Yeah. The, the turnover of the Marine Corps, the youth of the Marine Corps and the turnover is astounding. And that right. model has been our model since, I think, 1972. 
Yeah. So the practical, um, you know, uh, hoops you're going to have to jump through to get those guys, you know, is going to be uh, considerable. You just can't, you know, persuade somebody to do that, you know, based on uh, the, you know, the type of pay we got now and the benefits and so forth. Um, there'll have to be some kind of, um, like, uh, you know, ladder type, uh, 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 you know, you know, you do this good, you get this much and so forth. And uh, we have to be able to have pay incentives that allow us to get and keep people longer. And they have to be able to stay at a, at a level of doer and not supervisor for a longer amount of time. I don't mean supervisor of like, I don't mean squad leader types or, or like platoon leader types. That guy, we want to stay, we want him to learn how to be good. And we want his people to be good, but they got to stay in those jobs I think for years we got to be some of them like some of the in some of the the first three blocks especially. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to initially bring people in and train them up to do block four. You know where they're in there to to win the war. You know they're in there, and then from that there's a selection process for people who can move up to do block three and two and one. And, uh, and that is, different. And, and those are the nuanced skills. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that's something where, you know, like, uh, I thought, um, you know, that, uh, that team, that like advisor team of like 12 guys or, you know, 15 guys centered around, you know, the war fighting functions of the unit you're trying to, uh, you're trying to influence was sound. And that was developed by this, by the U S army special forces. That's, basically how they did it and the idea was everybody was trained so well in a long long you know period of training training pipeline and then once they were together they trained each other they cross-trained each other in these things and and they show up at a you know at a unit and they're like in block one and they're very effective and then uh and for the other two blocks the same type of ethos goes in that uh you know you're you're basically culling that uh you're using that that motivated bunch that would be in block four as they mature, as they get older, as they get stronger, you know, as they gain experience, as they, uh, you know, those are the ones that's who you recruit for those, those, uh, earlier blocks Got from it. that. But those guys are tough, hardcore kids who start out at 19 years old. And by the time they get to be 23, 24 years old, you say, okay, you passed, you are now, you know, um, one of these littoral, you know, dudes, you are now, you are, you're going to be able to operate, you know, a mod deuce and then turn around and, and shoot a nuclear missile at a guy, you know. Right. So it's like uh, and, at and the then, same time. And train, to, and, and train somebody in another military. And somebody, right, yes, and, exactly and right. The, um, right let, yeah. let me read you one other thing you write because this is interesting. When it comes to, to talent level and maturity or seniority of the force, we must stop exploring and or studying and or delaying and finally do what senior infantry leaders have been advocating for decades. Future infantry unit leaders, starting at the fire team level, must be in their 20s rather than their teens. We must also ensure the selection into the infantry is no longer a guarantee, but an earned trust into the close combat force based strictly and only upon objective, rigorous, historically informed, and future-focused performance standards. Additionally, after succeeding through the initial infantry gate, entry gate, 
The same approach must apply when selecting those Marines that will serve in critical team leader, squad leader, platoon sergeant, platoon and company commander billets. Additionally, we must accept that the institution will have to recognize and pay these Marines accordingly through right. promotions and bonuses tied to billets, billet qualifications, tied to biannual certifications in order to verify proficiency. This will create the required cadre of Marines who can fight and win in the complexities of the future as a four-block littoral force. Exactly. Because you need that because you don't want to lose these guys either. You know, some of those other blocks are going to be like our Marshlock guys now where they're getting hired away from the Marine Corps before their 20 years is up. And, uh, you know, so we got to be able to compete with that. And again, and so so the model of of retaining one every four Marines after their first uh, enlistment would would be greatly changed in that we're now going to recruit or retain 50%. And that means the recruiting mission for entry level goes down. But the recruiting mission for retention goes up, up, right, which means – your budget for your focus, right? You're gonna your budget for personnel goes up, right? Your yep. budget for for bonuses goes up, right? Yeah, education, right? Yes, right, right, all right. that uh, family type stuff. Yeah. So again, what what Dale articulates 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 in this is Says, yeah. I've never seen, you know, again, and, and I have I'm I haven't sat in these briefs. I tend to read the the only thing we have to read is open source stuff, mm-hmm. right? This is the best description I've seen. Yes. Why don't I you? Agree. Hey, before you start fucking screaming and yelling, let me at least get it out of my mouth. I agree with you, man. <laughs> no, but uh, not because I don't say this because I like Dale. But but again, these things have weighed on us. Like, what the fuck happened? And how does this work? You know, we're rocket security forces, and so I think in this you can see. You know, you know. Again, Dale's really, really good at this shit. But you can see, though, you're not talking about, you know, modifying the Marine Corps on the fringes, right? You're talking Absolutely. when you talk about fundamentally restructuring the Marine Corps personnel model. That's no bullshit, man. That is a huge, huge, you know, shift in the tectonic plates of the Marine Corps. That might be the hardest thing of this. I, I yeah. yeah. They are a force to be reckoned with. Right. And so once you redefine the Marine Corps and you say, okay, this is where we're going, we're not going to need as many, what, recruiters? We're not going to need all these other, you know, we don't need as many MOI guys out there because we, we're not going to have the demand for it because of our retention. So it's going to be, it's going to, I think it'll be fascinating to watch the institution, you know, kind of roll to this. Yeah. I have to tell you, Matt. From what I think, my opinion is that a lot of that personnel stuff, they're like the Marine Corps version of the deep state. Whoa. I mean, they're powerful. And oh, you they, mean you mean as it exists today? Yeah. In the Marsh in the, in the Marsh building. Yes, it's not going to be easy. They will fight like hell. And these are entrenched, civi- yeah. a lot of them civilian. Yeah. Guys who have great, you know, men and women who have great say in what the Marine Corps does. They are the. They are the deep state of the Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah, right. they, and they can outlast yeah. you. They can, you know, uh, they're looking at Joe Berger just like they looked at everybody else, going, 
he'll be around for yeah. a few years and then he'll be, he'll gone, be gone. You know? and We go on forever. We go on Do we forever. ever go anywhere? No, we just stay here and, you know, well, they used to call them the little old ladies in tennis shoes. The, but, uh, the, um, and so let me go to his conclusion. Uh, yes. the, the conclu- he says the, the title of his conclusion is the conclusion as the, as the beginning. And I'll skip down. Uh, he talks about the, imp- the, imp- the infantry is at this intersection of history and geography. We can clearly appreciate the accomplishment and wisdom of the past. Our small wars, heritage, amphibious doctrine, and maneuver warfare all persist as monuments to our legacy of innovation and remained in grade in our ethos today. The inheritance was best described by Commandant Krulak, Krulak in his introduction to the 1997 update of war fighting. He articulated that the maneuver warfare philosophy should also serve as our approach to duty. This approach to duty requires trust, tactics, humility, and the wisdom to see that our future will always be tied to the geography of the littorals. We are Marines of a maritime nation, and our greatest national interest will always cause us to look to the Pacific. And then Dale writes this, The infantry now has a choice. Many outside the Marine Corps have recognized the visionary wisdom of General Berger's efforts to chart a course for the Marine Corps into the Pacific. Others see a broader future in a partnership between the Marine Corps and the Special Operations Forces in the future. Central to any hope of victory must be our commitment to build a four-block littoral force that can focus on the first three blocks and attack into the fourth block when needed. Yep. The um, And that's really Dale's conclusion. Um, his last sentence is now the question for the infantry is whether it will remain stuffed into the stuffed in the hold of the past accomplishments or if it will disembark and lead the way for the MAGTAF to seek the course future, the nation's interest and the enemy. That is a semper fidelis to our true dual legacy as any Marine could hope. So um, your thoughts on Dale's conclusion um, and where this all goes. Well, um, yeah, I, um, I think it's a, it's well articulated and, um, he, you know, basically, uh, we have a, we have a very good background to do this. We've got a good history, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's trite to say we have a good history. I mean, you know, we have fantastic history. I was going to say, you know, but, uh, who are you? Yeah, we uh, we have a fantastic history, and this should be something that we can eagerly, you know, explore. And uh, I like the way it's set out there. It's the best. It's the only time I ever saw anybody, I ever read anything that really made me think I could sink my teeth into this. I could, you know, and I think everybody, no matter which block you find yourself in, you know, when we're talking about younger Marines, they could. Uh, you know, they could see this. This thing makes sense. It makes sense to us too because we know that, you know, we know that there there's a tremendous. We have to assume there's a tremendous capability in our adversaries, and that being the case, how do we mold ourselves into that? We're not ready now, not by a long sight, for any of this stuff. Well, again, I think part of the way that that it's been articulated is is we're going to be, you know, on these ships. And, and mm-hmm. I just don't see how 
you know, again, my experience on an aircraft carrier in the 80s, right, anytime you went near the Kamchatka Peninsula, you had you had two Russian ships. Yeah. Right? One on the, on, on the port and one on your starboard side. One was an EW ship recording every electromagnetic pulse that you sent out so they would yep. know your signature. The other one was a frigate on the, or a destroyer on the other side just watching you. Mm-hmm. And they wanted you to know. So to me, if we have 20... How many, what, the Chinese would, would create 60, 80 small, you know, militia vessels with drones to essentially, you know, mark us, to follow us everywhere that we fucking went. They would have vehicles that were, you know, ships that were as fast and as drill as ours. And they would know that because they'll have our plans, for God's sakes, because yeah. they steal everything. And so to me, I don't see, so to me, what this what Dale does is reinforces, you know, the fact that in block one you're develop you know you hopefully you have economic treaties and now right. you're, you're there on the ground developing those relationships military to military relationships you're mm-hmm. you're you're essentially screening your your intelligence gathering you're building relationships you know which will which will pave the way for these things that will come in the future and right. now once you can do that okay i got it i i see how this works, okay? So limited, ultimately limited objectives, attacks, and and you know, and precision got munitions. Okay, yeah, I got it. But if but if but if that's that's different than than what's been articulated to us before, which is yeah. we're operating off these ships. I don't see how those ships survive. I know it, and this is the first time it's ever been. Okay, that's our entree is block one. That's how we get into these places, you know, in a viable way. That's like paying. That's like showing respect to people who already live there, you know, and that that the that that's going to be a huge thing. These the the whole block concept here, you know, is uh is uh really answers a lot of questions that were just not you know, we weren't you weren't either you weren't allowed to ask them or no one was answering them, you know okay. what. What the hell are you talking about with this thing? All of a sudden, we're going to be a bunch of 12 to 15-man units on little islands. I mean, that's what you kind of got out of the thing. And you're like, there's got to be more to this than that. And we're going to be securing rocket sites. Yeah, and so this thing makes sense. You know, I mean, all we knew was we're losing tanks. We're losing snipers. The All the crew serve weapons are going to be in the, the arms room of the, of the battalion. Yeah, yeah. It's like, tube, you know. Tubed artillery. Yeah, losing it. And then, and the reason is this stuff, you know, it's a little bit more. And also, there was no, you know, elucidation of where we fit in, in terms of the Navy, you know, when this, for the whole last year. But now this thing makes sense. You know, this makes, if this is, you know, the, what they're driving at, then this can be done. You know, you need to, general, everyone knew what the hell General Gray was driving at, you know. He, you know, we were going to, you know, we were going to be uh, a combined arms force that did maneuver warfare. It was simple to understand. Um, General Krulak, the three-block war thing, shit, we had thousands of guys who by that time had already fought in their own little three-block wars. Right. You know, so we knew it, you know. And uh, this, finally, you know, there's some clarity for our young jarheads who are out there, you know. Right. No, no, Dale, I think does a great job of hanging, you know, me on the skeleton of this thing and at least yeah. at least his thoughts on on how this thing 
you know, on how this thing progresses. So, uh, so you know, again, the next question is how much of what Dale articulates uh, articulates will the Marine Corps buy and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, well, yep. first of all, Jeff, uh, thank you for doing this. Um, I know it's uh, for us, it's labor of love talking infantry shit. Oh yeah, and uh, especially something by uh, that written by a guy who we both have uh, incredible respect for. And uh, no, just a great guy. I I had the good fortune to have lunch. I, I don't know. We I say lunch, but I think we were hang, we hung out for about two and a half, three hours uh, in in uh, some restaurant bar in Jacksonville. He's a, <laughs> in so many ways. I remember uh, after I came back from Liberia, right with with Dale like, Alford not too long yeah. ago, and just and let me yeah. say, just he's one of those guys like our friends tend to be funny, right? You don't know he's as smart as he is, right? Because he doesn't wear it on his sleeve, right, right. completely unafraid to mix it up with you uh, intellectually uh, in a bar or with anybody else in the bar, right, mm-hmm. either physically or intellectually, um, hey, which Mac, is the way our yeah. friends tend to be. And, but, I got to tell you, Mac, um, in the Marine Corps Ball of 1996, we all went to the Lejeune. Have you ever been to a Lejeune Ball? No. You have it in the, the field house. And uh, – so we're in there, and it's the night that Mike Tyson was fighting Evander Holyfield. So I had it at my house, and I told him and Sparky Renforth, all my lieutenants, um, all the company commanders that would come from 2-2, um, uh, Mel, you know, Eric Mellinger is one of them, you know, uh, <laughs> and we got so we, – we were so engrossed in drinking and talking – we missed the fucking big ear biting thing. <laughs> it sucked, and, and you know. So, we had so you, relax. so you guys are having an argument about something, yeah. right? A discussion, well, like, and you're yeah. not even watching the fight. No, we were talking. <laughs> we weren't arguing. I don't think, but we were. No. Either people were laughing. Someone was like remembering the Jim Hall ball or something or some other ridiculous thing. But we were so. It was like when the day that. General Furness took over from General um, uh, what was that guy's name? The guy before him. Um, oh, I forgot. Yeah, I, mean, I forgot too. I know the guy, but I, it's a senior moment thing. But uh, you remember that night we were at Dave's house till like four o'clock in the morning. I don't think I drank a whole drink. We we're too busy, talking. you know, talking because we hadn't seen each other. Although I drank several whole drinks. <laughs> I mean, maybe two. A lot of it, you know, it was like we're all in like blue, like your your modified blues for after the ball, trousers, n- t-shirt, you know, what I mean? <laughs> suspenders and shit, you know. But yeah, it was uh, a lot of good times for sure. And he's a, you know, super quality individual for sure. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, uh, he's to say he's an anomaly, an anomaly is is an, is an understatement. When you've when you've gone in harm's way at every rank you've ever held yeah. in the Marine Corps, um, that's an amazing and that's an amazing record. And, and uh, let me tell Del, Del Alfred's as good as it gets. And uh, and you know hopefully you know uh, a lot of things that he discusses and his intellectual um, I don't know how to say it his intellectual brilliance is something that the commandant will seize on. And because Dale, let me tell you, if you want to get some shit done, right, yep. call Dale Alford. He'll get it done. And, hey, guys, he's, he's got an amazing way about him. 
And, and it, it, the thing I love about him, though, is he's not afraid. He's not afraid, and and I think that's a that's a that's a, that's a skill set that uh, that we need to put front and center in the Marine Corps because uh, we got too many people that that aren't like that. So anyway. yeah, he's intellectually curious for sure. Right, right, right. All right, bud. Must be I, better. I appreciate the the time tonight. Thank you. Thanks everyone. for inviting me. That is Jeff Kenny talking about a paper that Dale Alford wrote, uh, and I wish I could share it with you, but I can't. It, you will see it, another reason to subscribe to the Marine Corps Gazette. But the title of the paper is The Four Block Littoral Force, The Infantry's Attack Towards Force Design 2030. And so, uh, so again, um, I'm extremely encouraged. Just the second article I've seen the Gazette, you know, going to publish that uh, begins, I think, a broader discussion of Force Design 2030. And, uh, and I think it's... Uh, I think well done. And let me tell you, the guys that have, you know, Chris Tavuchis, uh, Colonel Type, uh, Director of the Marine Corps Artillery School at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, former Commander 11th Marine Regiment. Uh, Chris talked about uh, composite rocket battalions are not the way to go. And so, uh, so again, starting to have a discussion and led by guys who uh, I have incredible respect for. And who aren't afraid of the truth. So I think that's a really important example to set for other people. I commend Chris Woodbridge uh, for uh, for doing this and these guys for uh, for writing. So uh, well done. Uh, so uh, that is a uh, that is Jeff Kenny and I uh, talking about uh, uh, the floor, four block littoral force, the infantry, the infantry's attack towards. Force Design 2030, written by Major General Dale Alford. More of All Marine Radio coming up next, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network.